Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Mr. Jake Gunderson, as well as our sixth and final panelist before the rotation starts over, Andy Busek. Andy's a long-standing member of the RayWendlick.com family, as well as the mobile team leader, A. Weber. Now, since spending a good hour chatting with Ellen Shapiro about unit testing back in Season 2, there's been another tool in the developer's testing tool belt that I've been itching to cover on the show, and that's continuous integration. And finally, somebody has taken that bait. So, Andy, your 20 minutes start now. It's over to you. Great. Thanks, Mick. And I think right off the bat, you, you called continuous integration a tool, and... I, you know, thinking about continuous integration, I'd almost call it more of a practice that's supported by a bunch of different tools. If I think about like what that practice is, um, it's probably something different to a lot of different people, and it especially varies based on the type of software you're developing. So I think I want to just take a minute to like level set and how I understand continuous integration and how we use it here at Aweber to basically build in quality to our apps. I think that its roots go back to some pain that came out of the old waterfall software development methodology where people would basically spend long periods of time developing code on their own in like their own local code base. And then at some point, then they would go to integrate with the rest of the code base and the other people on their team and experience like this huge pain of, of what that integration was. And you know whether that was something low level like just resort, re, just uh, resolving merge conflicts, or even like having huge headaches around just how do we get the code working together. Spawned what I come to now know as continuous integration. Continuous integrations, kind of like on an ongoing basis. How quickly and can you then pull your different pieces of code together and verify quality? And it's almost like the more frequent that you can do that as a team, the more closely to you continuously integrating your code with each other. Well, just just before you carry on, Andy, can you define quality for us just because obviously that could cover a, a wide spectrum of things? I Yeah, sure. I think when I think about quality, I'm obviously talking about like minimal amount of bugs getting built into your application. And those bugs can be anything from stuff that's end user facing that makes it into your app on the app store, like live impacting customers to even just a failing test case, automated test case that may not even, that may be something very like on the edge that a customer may not see, or even just code, does the code compile? Does what's in your source control system actually compile? I think any of that is what I would call quality. Okay, I'll let you continue. With continuous integration here, how we use it at Aweber, we're really particular about our workflow. And we didn't really want to let our tool set define our workflow. So we've kind of like picked this various various tools to actually support how we want to work. I think as a result, we've been kind of constrained by those choices in terms of like trying new stuff because for whatever limitation, different tools may not actually support specific things we want out of our workflow. But I think that's kind of where like us as a team have agreed that like workflow kind of trumps changing 
the train like change just for the sake of trying a new tool. We use a process I'd call loosely associates with Git flow. We also use GitHub and Git for our source code management. Also, our team size is it's actually right now we have two iOS developers, two Android developers, a couple back end. We basically support three different apps on each platform, Android and iOS. My day-to-day is I'm, I'm pretty much always doing iOS development, and I then participate in code reviews for Android. Basically, with like our GitFlow-oriented workflow, most of our development happens in feature branches. And we try to get the commits that we put in to be as atomic and small but functional as possible. So any given commit that goes in can represent something that doesn't break our builds, can be checked out and can be like a representative piece of functionality for the app. Those get opened as pull requests, which then gets will be like proposed changes that make it into the main trunk of the application. The actual trunk of the application can vary. It's usually something we call develop, which is parallel to our master master branch. Essentially master, the tip of master, the head of master always represents what's in the customer's hand in the app store at any given time. As we're going through development, stuff gets merged into the develop branch from the feature branches, and then they get merged into master right around release. There's some details, which I actually wrote up in a blog post, that I can I can give you guys as a link with, with some more details on how we manage stuff like hot fixes or supporting beta SDKs that may not actually be out yet. Yeah, because we'll uh, we'll definitely get those in the show notes because I think it's good to to get a good understanding of the entire process that you're talking about rather than just the the sort of um, continuous integration part. From my day to day, then I'll be working on stuff locally, and again, it's like we're not doing a commit doesn't really represent like oh I'm saving my state, but I'm working towards a commit being like a nice piece of functionality but while also small. Once I have that ready. And we're, we try to stick to test-driven development as much as possible. Um, I'd say kind of test-driven development's a little bit more of like a best effort while trying to achieve near 100% code coverage is more of like a definite expectation we have on the team. For uh, the automated tests, like that code coverage, at the unit test level, that's specifically where we're, in it, where we're doing our test-driven development. And that's where we want that full coverage. The unit tests, then, we complement with integration tests. Integration tests are more of like, you might have heard them called um, black box tests, or this is what Apple's now released as their, I think it's called uh, UI tests, previously in UI automation. We're actually writing those using KIF. We haven't actually migrated over to using Xcode yet. And those are really kind of like complements to the unit test. And there's a lo- not really any strict rules on what coverage we strive for there, but kind of just like a redundant layer to do verification, especially if there's things that you can't actually verify from the unit test perspective. So the given commit will include all that, all those verifications that you need in the automated manner. And then once that commit gets pushed up to GitHub, it'll trigger automated tests to run. And that's con- this is where continuous integration, like the concept of continuous integration happens. So the rule of thumb is that no commit is going to get merged for which a build fails. And in fact, it's almost like a little embarrassing if you even do push up a commit that the build fails for. Because there's no expectation that's going to merge. And it's more like, well, did you try it locally? Like, why is it failing? Now, that being said, there's plenty of times that the continuous integration server is actually broken and... It's not like being a clear representation of 
did you actually like push a commit that is in reality breaking the build? The tools that we use around the continuous integration to make sure this stuff all happens is at the moment we're using Jenkins. Jenkins is nothing iOS app specific. And in fact, I think it goes back to Java development for the web. Um, might have been in its might have been its roots. I know it's written in Java. So we use Jenkins to manage our continuous integration. And I think where we got to using Jenkins, it wasn't as much of an explicit choice as again like something that okay, here's what the rest of the organization at Aweber uses, which the rest of Aweber does plenty of different development. It's not an I, we're not a mobile app development shop. And uh, there was a lot of organizational kind of like domain expertise in Jenkins and managing it. So, and it happened to support the workflow we wanted. That's how we came to use Jenkins. Now, Jenkins in and of itself doesn't actually support iOS builds. You need a Mac somewhere to actually do that compilation and packaging of the app. Jenkins is living on some server in the cloud right now. And that actually has a Mac mini here in the office set up as a slave. And what will happen is that Jenkins takes care of detecting when the code is pushed, the commit is pushed, and then it'll say, oh, okay, commit XYZ is pushed, and it hands the code off over to the Mac Mini to run the tests. The Mac Mini is sitting there here in the office. It's got a cabinet, I think, of about 25 devices in it. And based on whatever configuration for that specific build, we'll then kick off those tests to be run. Can I ask a quick question about that? So it does, you do actually need like iPhones and iPads connected to the mini in order to have it run those tests. Is that what you're saying? That's what we've chosen to do. You can also configure it to run the simulator. If yeah, that's I mean, we all asking. know, we all know the limitations of that, of that but yeah, that's, <laughs> we've got like a few USB hubs in there and they're just like a million cables and everything's just stacked up on top of each other. Yep. You got it. It's actually a pretty okay. cool cabinet because it's, it's like got drawers, almost like a rack you'd see in a data center. Um, and, and the Mac mini hangs in the back. So it's, it's fairly, it's wired fairly clean. Maybe I'll see if I can even get a picture that you guys could link to in the show notes or something. Yeah. Okay. I've n- yeah. I mean, th- that, that makes sense to me. I just never thought through it to that point where like, yeah, you're going to need, you know, a cabinet full of just tons of iOS devices, but that makes sense. Now it's, I like encourage anyone listening to this that's like right now jumping up and down saying there's a much better easy there's a much easier way to do this to like get in contact and let me know because managing devices especially like now that there's tens of devices to manage is not easy and partner that with like how you have to configure in Jenkins is that we're using the UD ID of the device in the scripts to be targeted which means there's like a manual matchup of the device that we have to like maintain in documentation to know that this device is this UD ID and that the job is actually using that well have you just out of curiosity before we carry on have you investigated any of the stuff that's in the cloud for device amazon offer device farm which supports ios which like gives you devices in the cloud and that cross-platform technology that i can't quite it's on the tip of my tongue i can't quite remember uh it's written in c-sharp mono is it xamarin xamarin right yeah xamarin so xamarin offer a cloud as well i mean i think that's primarily for android um but i'm not sure if they do ios but amazon definitely have a device like you can access to their device farm and um it runs on real devices apparently but like you don't have to you provision those devices in the same way that you do like ec2 instances or anything like that in the in the cloud and it will handle it all for you so i don't know if you've investigated something like that i i think it's on our radar we haven't actually tried it out yet the i think that's 
is the next time, you know, there's going to be a time when we like continue to buy devices or somebody accidentally upgrades one of like our old iOS 7 devices where something like that becomes a lot more attractive. And I think it might be like our tipping point to be like, okay, let's figure out some cloud-based testing. Just while we're talking about, you know, that specific thing of evaluating what it is you're using now and is there a better option? Have you looked, I know you, you sort of said you use Jenkins because as a wider company, Aweber uses Jenkins and therefore it made sense to use the tool that, you know, the rest of the company was already using and you've got expertise and knowledge there. But I was just wondering if you had, you, you know, looked at anything like Travis or Circle or even, you know, Xcode Server. Yes, we have. The, I think the quick answer on Travis is that we use Enterprise GitHub and I don't know that Travis works with that. Do you guys know if that's the case? I don't know off the top of my head. I think with some of those cloud-based continuous integration solutions, like other, there's other ones than Travis. One I was using on a side project, I think was called ship.io, is that uh, I didn't see a way that I could configure it to use or to access really our enterprise-hosted GitHub that's internal to our network. Okay, so it, yeah, it looks like you have Travis um, have a product called Travis CI Enterprise which is built to work with GitHub Enterprise. So you probably have to purchase and install their sort of local version as well. You were asking about Xcode Server. Now, we actually have started to like dip our toes in the water with Xcode Server. One of our builds that we have that will continuously verify our code, we call it our nightlies. And those are a bunch of jobs that we've actually migrated from Jenkins into Xcode Server, which will basically run our defined set of tests from a given branch on a device, and those are configured to run an Xcode server. Uh, there's a couple aspects of our workflow that we haven't really got to work yet on Xcode server in terms of integrating it into like to be able to fully move off of Jenkins. But um, I think we've we've kind of like set up those nightly jobs to start like evaluating how does Xcode how's Xcode server showing us history of our builds, like what do we like about it? Are we, are we ready to give up these aspects of our workflow in order to move over to it? So we're kind of in the middle of that evaluation right now. So if you, obviously one of the things that you would need to consider migrating off something like uh, Jenkins, where you can basically configure it to, to build anything you throw at it, to move into something like Xcode Server where it's, you know, iOS and Mac and probably tvOS specific, you, you kind of, siloing yourself off from the rest of the um, business by doing so because obviously you said you know you, in your mobile team you've got some ios developers you've got some android developers and you, you can probably share that process and and knowledge that you've got behind your continuous integration process but if you as the ios team move towards using xcode server then you kind of lose all that uh, collaboration effort Yep, that's a great point. Like right now, it's fairly easy for the Android developers to recognize a failing iOS build and get at least a basic level of troubleshooting information to pass over to us if they come across that. And that would be a learning curve if we fully switched over to Xcode Server. Another thing that we have set up in Jenkins, which I personally really like is, and our sysadmins set this up, so I'm not even sure how they did it, but basically... Any time that I go into the Jenkins jobs configuration page and make a change, it snapshots that in a text file, automatically commits it to a GitHub repo, like totally separate from our project. So it makes it really easy to like have confidence that if I change anything about that, like it's not like I can't go backwards. And I assume as well, you've got lots of other integrations set with Jenkins like Slack and whatnot. 
because I suppose yep. that's another advantage you get that you wouldn't have with Xcode Server. Yeah, so Jenkins, it's it's like a powerhouse in that you can really get low-level configuration with that. One thing that we do with it that I that I really like is kind of the audit trail of building our OTA builds, sending them out to our beta testers through Crashlytics. And then once we get like start getting to release candidate territory, we can then take those same IPA f- outputs from Jenkins and submit that to Apple. And it, again, it's like you can almost track the whole thing from the build number that's automatically put into the binary to the Jenkins build back to a GitHub commit and really have confidence that like what you're sending to Apple is something that's gone through that whole quality assurance process. And I'm, I don't even know where to, I would have, you're like starting at square one with that research to then reproduce all that next code server. I have a question from kind of my perspective I've worked on lots of small teams. I have not used continuous integration except for at one place. During the time I was there when we actually integrated, we used Jenkins too, and I didn't touch it. One of the other developers put it together. You mentioned the size of your team, and and it's not a huge team, but it does sound like you're part of a much larger larger organization. My trade-off has always been, is it worth my time to invest in learning how to set up a Jenkins server being a small developer and working on small teams and so far not having, you know, say not having needed continuous integration. Although once I have it, I might, I might feel like I did need it. And I just didn't know it. What's your perspective on that for somebody like me? Is it worth, should I go out and, and learn about some of this? Will I be glad that I put that time in? Uh, there's a phrase like saved my bacon. And I think you, you know, when that ha- happens and having this all set up, has definitely given me the feeling and more times than not that it saved my bacon. It is a lot to set up and maintain. I um, There's definitely times on the team that we've talked about, like it would be great to have a person dedicated to just keeping the health of Jenkins together. In some more smaller scale side projects I've done, you know, I don't think I would have gone this far to set this up. I would definitely, you know, the the ease that like Travis CI advertises to have to be able to connect to your private repo and just get jobs set up that quickly, that's really attractive. I think they sh- this product's shut down. It was called ship.io. They th- their mission was to make this as easy as possible and and they did it. Like you literally just pointed their your job to a repo and said test and picked which devices to test on and like what to trigger the build and it it worked great jenkins is takes a lot of care and feeding for sure and i think that's even just beyond the scope of how we use it in the least i guess my recommendation would be to you know if you're going to start somewhere like say you have none of this in place just getting some level of automated testing going would be the place to start and like mm-hmm. don't let that get stale. Really, I think the overall goal with like continuous integration is to keep this kind of like non-user facing development and development administration happening regularly. Because it's it's definitely the kind of thing like if you write unit tests in a project and then go three months without ever running them and then go back and try them, chances are like they may not even compile, let alone pass or even give you the value. So it's definitely something where the more you do it, the more value you get out of it. All right. I'm going to have to break in and stop stop you there, Andy. But thank you so much. All of this was brand new to me, so I really appreciate your perspective. And I, I, I'm, I'm much more eager now to check out some of, the, some of my options uh, than I was when we started. 
Before we go talk to Mick about his topic today, we're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber, and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform. Just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlet.com podcast. All right, Mick, uh, your 20 minutes have started. What would you like to talk to us about today? Okay, so for the last couple of weeks, I've been doing some prep for one of my RWDevCon sessions, given that the conference is just around the corner now. And my session, well, actually, it's it's one large session, but it's split in two. I'm doing the first part, and Sam Davies, who has also been on the podcast, he's doing a, the follow-up session. And it's all about building custom controls for iOS. My session uh, covers predominantly the aesthetics, getting something on screen, building up you know, the, the visual side of that control, and then Sam takes it on and adds interactivity and shows you how to package it up as a framework and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really good session if that's something you're interested in. And while I've been putting this together, something stood out to me that we'd never really spoke about on the podcast, and we're approaching our 50th episode soon. And uh, what I'm going to mention now has been was introduced in... Uh, Xcode 6 and was we did a couple of chapters on it in iOS 8 by tutorials but it's still very relevant today and it's far more stable and um, reliable than it was when it was first delivered and that's live rendering of custom views in Interface Builder using two annotations IB Designable and IB Inspectable and these allow you to take your custom view and have it appear on the storyboard canvas in Interface Builder, just as it would appear if you were to build and run that project, uh, and therefore gives you a very familiar feeling to the controls that are provided by Interface Builder at the box, like buttons and table views and all that kind of stuff. I mentioned there that it was these two annotations. The first one, IB Designable. This is what instructs Interface Builder to actually your, this, this is what exposes your custom view to Interface Builder so it knows to take it off, compile it, and, and display it. And you actually add this annotation to your custom view just above the class definition. And this causes Interface Builder to compile your view in the background using a separate uh, process. And then it spits it out and displays it in, in IB. Because this is doing it in the background and it's compilation, and especially if your code's in Swift, which is a little bit slower to compile than... Objective-C as it stands. Uh, this can be slow on older machines. I've currently got a 2013 MacBook Air, and you know there is quite a noticeable delay between me saving a, some code, flipping over to Interface Builder, and waiting for Interface Builder to catch up. And anybody coming to my session will, will see that because I'll be running it off that machine. Now, IB Designable works fine with view or layer compositing. So this is where you know you have your custom UI view class and you're going to pull in existing views like image views or labels or whatever to build out how that class, how that view appears. You know, you can do the same with layers. That works fine with IB Designable. Also, you can override draw rect and do all your custom core graphics calls. And again, these will render exactly as you want them to do in Interface Builder. Now, if you are using view composition, 
It's also compatible with defining auto layout constraints in code. Obviously, if you want to set up a view and say you want to have three uh, image views arranged in your custom view, you can define all those constraints in code. And when you pull that view out onto your storyboard canvas, it will uh, honor those constraints so everything looks just as it would. Um, but if you're gonna do this, you need to make sure that you set translates or a resizing mask into constraints to false as early as possible in the view's lifecycle. So usually do this in, in one of the two designated initializers. Um, and this just tells Ivy to not take the existing um, resizing mask and turn it into constraints because you're gonna handle those constraints yourself. There are quite a few gotchas that I've run into over the last couple of weeks uh, with both layer composition and using auto layout, and I'll talk about those in a moment. But before I get to those, the next and final annotation that we're gonna cover is IB Inspectable. So this is kind of, you've got your view rendering now, um, but it renders exactly as you have it in code. The whole point about Interface Builder is that, you know, you can use the Identity Inspector and the Attribute Inspector to configure how that view should look via whatever public API you expose on your custom view. So just like with IB Designable, you, this is an annotation and you add this instead of to the class, you add this to the properties that you want to expose to Interface Builder. And it supports quite a few types, but they are limited. Uh, so I'll go these through, through these now. Um, you can do Booleans, strings, numbers, including instances of NS number, uh, CG point, CG size, CG rect, UI color and UI image. So anything outside of those won't be supported in Interface Builder in the current release. That may change in the future. Um, but you can still do quite a lot with those. Can you use the, you know, there's also, the, I don't know what it's called, but there's a box in IB where you can just put in custom key value pairs. Okay, so that, that is right the next point that I was going to get on to. Okay. So this is user-defined <laughs> okay. user runtime attributes. Yes. And it actually uses this under the hood. So if you create your view and you um, have some public properties and you annotate them all with IB Inspectable and you've got to do this on each property you want to expose whereas with IB Designable you just do it once on the whole class. If you then flick from the Attributes Inspector where these custom attributes are shown to the Identity Inspector where the user defined Runtime's Attributes boxes, you will see that that's actually where they live. So there will be an entry in there that marries up with the attribute okay. in the Attributes Inspector. User-defined runtime attributes have been around for a long time at Xcode. Um, they're available on both platforms, iOS and, and the Mac, and I, they probably came on the Mac first. For anybody that's not used these in the past, these allow you to set up a property of a view from within Interface Builder using key-value coding, and it's you know it's got full keypass support, so it's not just top-level stuff. You could do like layer.corner radius and set the value of that. But the difference is that in sort of, pre-Xcode 6, if you set up your user-defined runtime attributes, they wouldn't be rendered live in the storyboard, or back then it would have been a, you know, the, your zip file and your nib file. You would still have to wait till runtime before those would be applied, whereas using IB Inspectable, it's kind of taking advantage of what's already there, but building on it and, and showing it into this live rendering process. So that's really good because it allows you not only to see your view as it would look at runtime at design time, but you can also configure it at design time and see those changes reflected. Just a couple of things about the attributes inspector. The names of the attributes that appear in there are inferred from the property name. So it will split words up based on the camel casing. 
And as I found out, you can't actually make that part of the attributes inspector any bigger. So if you've got some quite long property names, you'll find out that they just get the little sort of three dot ellipsis at the end and you can't quite, you know, especially if you've got two things that are named similar, uh, it can become a bit of a nightmare. So what I ended up doing was exposing a property, like a private property via a different named public uh, prop, like read-only computer property in Swift that had a different name. So I could actually get, but they were just so what was displayed on the attributes inspector, that, that was their only function. So that when we run the session, like it makes sense what those attributes are. You've got all this set up now. You've got IB designable and you've got your class being, uh, your view being rendered in the storyboard and you've, you've exposed all your properties that you want to expose and they're rendered as attributes in the attributes inspector and you can configure this. The kind of last thing that you might want to do is provide some placeholder data, but you only want that to appear when it's in Interface Builder. You, you don't want that to be shown, you know, at runtime. And Apple, you know, as always, are one step ahead and provided us with a, a method on UIView called Prepare for Interface Builder. And this is only called when it does that background rendering process. It's it's not called at, at runtime. And what you can use this for is to set any properties with, like as I say, like placeholder data. When your custom view is rendered in the canvas, you actually have something to show rather than, say, just a background color um, or, you know, an empty label and, and things like that, which is really cool. Now, I mentioned that there was a couple of, uh, well, a few <laughs> gotchas that I've run into working with these sort of quite in a lot over the last couple of weeks. The first thing that I ran into is... If you subclass UI view in Swift, Swift will complain unless you implement two initializers. So that's uh, init with frame and init with coder. As I've always understood it, init with frame is called when you create a view in code because that is the one that you would, you know, you would create that and you would pass in the frame of the size of that view that you want it to be. Init with coder is the one that's called when a view is inflated from a nib or a storyboard. You would expect that if you want to put any initialization code in your custom view to be run at when uh, Interface Builder is compiling your view, then it should go in, in it with Coder because it's being rendered from, you know, within a storyboard or within a nip. Turns out that's wrong uh, and it actually calls in it with frame, which was quite confusing. So, you know, that's one thing to bear, to bear in mind. The next thing is, I mentioned earlier, translates auto resizing mask into constraints. If you create your view, instances of your custom view in code, then you need to set this to false, uh, as I said, as early as possible in the view's lifecycle. So we usually do that in one of those initializers. And this is to stop auto layout trying to create constraints on your behalf, and then you'll end up with conflicting constraints. The problem is, if you, don't, if you set some constraints up in code that relate only to your view but then you want to take that view pop it in the storyboard and use constraints created in the storyboard to position and align that view auto uh, interface builder is doing something under the hood to facilitate that and it actually conflicts with whatever you set translates auto resizing masks into constraints to whether you set it to true or false and you end up with these really ambiguous auto layout warnings that you can't seem to get rid of the way to get around this, and I'm not sure whether this is a, a bug in 
uh, IB or in the live rendering process or just something that I've missed or completely misunderstood. But you can actually get around this by using one of the few macros that's exposed to Swift, and this is target underscore interface underscore builder. And then you can do kind of if target interface, or if not target interface builder, then you can set translates or resizing masking the constraints to false. Otherwise, you just ignore it and let IB do that. And I cover that in the session because at the beginning of the session, we run into those issues and then I kind of show you how to, to get around it. So that's quite cool. The last gotcha that I ran into was if you're using layer composition rather than view composition when building up the, the visual side of your custom view, then layers obviously aren't compatible with auto layout. You can't position and size uh, layers using auto layout. In order to get your views to render properly in Interface Builder that are built using layers, you need to override layout subviews and size and position your layers manually in there. So Mick, I, last year I did a session on paint code, specifically using IB Designable and IB Inspectable uh, at RW DevCon last year. And uh, what we did, I worked with um, uh, Ricardo, and it was really simple what we did. Um, and it was a little bit slow. And you mentioned that it's kind of slow still. Have you have you done anything very sophisticated? Like all we did was a view with a custom draw rect that drew like a spade or a, or a clover or whatever. We did like a deck of cards. And and that was just, you know, basically a path and a fill. It wasn't that much. And it was a little bit slow to compile. And then once it was compiled, you could, you know, change the values and it wasn't too bad. But I wonder, like, if you had, you know, custom drawing on top of custom drawing on top of custom drawing, is, is do you know, is there a point where it's just, like, it's too much or... So, in the session, in the, I actually, we built two samples, two separate samples in the session. And it, it is quite interesting to look at this. The first sample is... It's a UI view and it's got three image views in it and it's to build this like little collage uh, view where you, you add three photos to it. And that's quite slow, but all it is is obviously one view and then three three image views. In the in the lab, which is kind of the bit where you set off on your own um, and you follow like a, a tutorial that's written out, but you do it at your own pace and you're supposed to be applying everything that you've learned during the session, we move from UI view composition to... CA layer composition and that's really quite complex and you know we draw in circles and it goes quite deep in the, the layer tree and stuff but that actually renders much quicker than the one with just three image views in so there obviously is some difference between what it is and I wonder if because you were using draw rect which is like the lowest level you know that might have been a problem but also I've been speaking with Sam Davis obviously because we're collaborating on this session and also Caroline and I had the discussion about it because she's kind of big into car graphics and stuff. And she's working on a video series at the minute that talks about some of this stuff that both Sam and Caroline have run into issues where the, it just fails. The rendering just, just fails and the, the view never appears. And they put that down to, you know, their views being too complex. That's what I wonder. Tell me what you think of this. I feel like the greatest utility of this tool is that if you have a lot of custom controls, you can you know lay use interface builder the way it's designed, so you can see what you're going to get. But if you if you do have a very highly customized interface, um, you probably got a lot more than just one or two custom draw rec methods. And so 
I wonder if, you know, the, the, the perfect candidate for this technology also would have the most difficulty actually using it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, one of the biggest issues of gripes I've got with it is because every time you jump back to Interface Builder, it compiles any custom views you've got so it can display them. It's frustrating if if you finish with that view, if you finish with that view controller, that's all, you know, you can push that to one side and, and you might be working on something completely different that's using just stock controls, but because it lives in the same storyboard, you've still got to wait for that, you know, for that uh, background process to compile all those views so it can display them within that storyboard. So it'd be nice to say, you know, if we if there was a an option to turn it off for that view once you'd finished with it, that'd be quite good. The other thing that frustrates me is Clearly, as is always the case with Apple, we're using a process and you know a, a, a setup and kind of uh, tools and things like that that they aren't using because you don't experience any of these issues with the pre-configured. Um, you know, it doesn't. It knows how interface builder knows how to render. You know, a, a table view, a scroll view, a, a, a button, and it would have been nice to have been given the mechanism at least that's in a similar vein to what they use. So, yeah, okay, it might not be um, as immediate because I think what they're saying is, well, it's useful whilst you're developing that control because you can keep flipping between the two and not having to build and run, which is great. But then if we could turn that off or take that code and do something with it to turn it into, say, an interface builder plugin or something like that, where then we can forget about it because it's done, you know, and we can just throw that on the on the canvas in the same way we do with any other UI kit control. And that would kind of get around this, you know, is my view too complex? Is the, the build process too slow? All that kind of stuff. We will be able to get around that. Maybe that, that will come in the future with Xcode 8 or 9. Yeah, one thing that might help too is you could s- split up your big storyboard into multiple files with like some logical separation there. That might help. Well, that's a, that's a good idea. That's something that I've not thought of. And... That came last year, didn't it, with uh, storyboard references? So maybe that is something that you know I'll put in the end of my session to say, you know, if, if this is becoming a, a big problem, then you know Andy says <laughs> this is what you need to do to fix that. Um, yeah, definitely storyboard references. It's not something I thought about. Yeah, and even short of storyboard references too, you can do that programmatically. I think even before uh, Xcode seven. It looks like we're about out of time. Um, did you want to say anything else, Mick, about IB Designable and IB Inspectable? Well, just that, you know, if this conversation has whet your appetite and it's not something that you're, you're already using in your day-to-day iOS development and you are lucky enough to get one of the golden tickets to attend Hardware DevCon, then definitely come to my session and the follow-up with Sam and we'll walk you through doing some really cool stuff. The sample projects that we, that we build are pretty cool. And also, you'll take that then in Sam's session and show you how to package it up into a framework and make it reusable and redistributable so that that'll be really good um so i look forward to seeing you all there all right if that's our time for today we should wrap this up thank you again andy for joining us it was great to talk to you sure it was great to be here if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast please contact us via podcast at raywinderlick.com we love to hear from you we love to hear what you think of the podcast and don't forget to leave reviews on itunes that helps us a ton to get noticed and we really appreciate it thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.